Hey guys, what's up? It is week 275, and you know, I have some decent movies to cover, and I have some not-so-decent movies to cover this week. Um, This first one coming up is absolutely bonkers, and you know, a lot of people would say it's not very decent, but a lot of people will go up to bat for it. This is from Visual Vengeance, and this is their fourth release, and this is Suburban Sasquatch. Now, this is by uh, David Miscavige, and I believe he's done a bunch of movies. You know, I'm not as familiar with this guy. I know he's an independent filmmaker, and he's... um, So, listening to the features and everything like that. You know, this movie is one of these considered so bad it's good kind of films, and it's made in 2004, so it's kind of... I don't want to say it's before that trend where people made purposely bad movies like Sharknado, and it's always kind of been a thing, but it's got really kind of out of hand with Sharknado and stuff. So, I would never call that this. You know, this is one of these movies where everybody involved was definitely trying to make, you know, a successful film. So sometimes if, you know, there's some shoddy qualities about it or budget constraints or weird editing or weird acting and it's genuinely like an attempt at making something good, you get that kind of feel of the so bad it's good quality, right? And I've heard a lot about Suburban Sasquatch, but, uh, you know, it was never the the point to like push me to watch it. It always just sounded absolutely bonkers and ridiculous. And sometimes that can be a good thing or a bad thing, depending so, yeah, Suburban Sasquatch has a 100-minute runtime, and, you know, independent movies with long run times, you're usually like, oh, no, but I, I caught myself enjoying this. It's absolutely ridiculous, and it's very funny this week. Um, so let me get into the plot, essentially. We have um, a journalist who's looking to kind of make, make his big case, and he's trying to find this Sasquatch and get documentation of it, while there is a Native American woman trying to find the Sasquatch and take, take him out. Um, it, it gets into real weird territories, what the hell the Sasquatch where is it from and what all this kind of shit it's absolutely ridiculous um there is some absurd editing in here to the point where i was like what is going on why are the decisions being made like this and um it comes across hilarious at times there is a point of course where you know the sasquatch is attacking uh, two guys who are fishing in a river um in a stream or whatever you want to call it and uh more so a stream but uh, this guy, uh, he gets his arm ripped off. Or the first point, the guy says, Dave, like this with his arms out. And then Sasquatch attacks the guy. And it cuts back to him and he goes, Dave, exactly the same. And the way that shot is done, it's 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 pretty funny. But then I also feel always genuinely kind of bad when you're like watching someone's work and they're obviously trying and, you know, they enjoyed what they're doing. And I, I give props to anybody who makes a movie. But you're like laughing at moments that aren't supposed to be funny. You always kind of feel like you're an asshole at it. But, you know, some people love that some people you know embrace it when it happens you know uh so like i said that stuff is uh it's, it's pretty entertaining the sasquatch suit um it doesn't look necessarily great but there's a uh, behind the scenes and they put a lot of work into it and i i believe i've seen worse suits so it's just it's just a, a weird experience in general the film as a whole um it, it's it's dirt cheap sov they added digital effects later on and usually when you add digital effects in a low budget movie post and you don't really know if you're going to add them or not a lot of them look real rough, and that that's the case here, you know. <laughs> if I'm not mistaken, is that this movie or the next one? Maybe both, where there's like a CGI eagle. Uh, this week I also watched uh, the new Predator movie, Prey, and I couldn't help but notice some similarities between Prey and Suburban Sasquatch. Um, you know, a tough female Native American ca- uh, character taking on an unstoppable monster, possibly from space? Is that- is, is he from space in Suburban Sasquatch, or is he a demon? He's some bonkers thing. Anyways, 
it, it, there's a lot of kills. There's a lot of hilarious acting and dialogue and awkwardness and silliness. Um, so if that's the type of movie you'd like, you know, have a couple drinks, sit down with a couple friends and watch Suburban Sasquatch. It's, it's definitely the kind of movie like that somebody would do a riff tracks on, which I believe there is a riff track on here. Of course, there should be. So as far as the special features are concerned, we have an archival 2004 SD master from original tape source. So this is an SUV. New 2021 commentary by David Wascavage. Uh, commentary from Sam uh, Pantico and BNS about movies. And Bill Van Rye of Drive-In Asylum. Includes the full riff track episode of Suburban Sasquatch. Archival behind-the-scenes featurette. Designing the Bigfoot costume. Which it seems they put a lot of work and thought into it. Um, necessarily how it turns out. It's up to you to decide. Outtakes. Making the CGI. From the director's point of view. Archival interviews. Behind-the-scenes image gallery. Original the- uh, teaser trailer. Original trailer. Visual vengeance trailers. Reversible sleeve. All that kind of stuff. Two-sided stuff. So yeah, there's a lot of cool stuff in here. And I'm, I'm digging these releases. It's nice to see stuff that a lot of people weren't going to put out in these like deluxe editions putting them out like we have necrophiles uh bodybuilder from hell um geez what la age jabber and suburban sasquatch that's a pretty good four four piece run in the very beginning absolutely ridiculous movie um i i can't give this like a wholehearted recommend to everyone but uh certain people will love this certain people will hate this um my friend dave z do not from exploding heads do not watch suburban sasquatch this isn't for you but i know some other people really love it so check it out you've been warned Okay, so the next one up is from Arrow Video, and this is Running Out of Time, Parts 1 and 2. I'll do them together, although the review for 2 is going to be kind of brief. But, uh, yeah, I had not seen this. Uh, this originally came out, what, 1999 was the first one, and the sequel came out in, like, 2002. So uh, I was kind of interested in watching these ones. Um, the lead actor is in a slew of movies, uh, tons of movies, but surprisingly, the only movie that I actually had seen with him in that I recall was Hello, Who Is It? from 1994, which is a bizarre horror ghost film from Hong Kong. So, uh, yeah, this one, it basically follows a police negotiator and you kind of get to see the opening kind of like catch you in the stinger in the very beginning really catches your attention. It's a pretty intense bank robbery scene and it ends kind of on a downbeat note. And so as we progress, we kind of are introduced to the other character who's going to be our antagonist of the film. And he is suffering from, you know, a terminal illness and he seems to have all these kind of things up his sleeve. And he, he uh, kind of does this kidnapping on top of this building. This 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 uh, building that houses a lot of important items. And our negotiator shows up. And he seems to have being targeted this negotiator to do it. And he brings him into the situation. And before long, they kind of have to work side by side to kind of stop the situation um, that this guy has caused. And there's a lot of funny moments in here. There's a lot of back and forth between the two. And this one, more so than the sequel, it creates like a good storyline where our antagonist becomes very sympathetic because of, you know, his past and why he's doing this and also his terminal illness. And they even have a little romance in here. Um, the chief, the chief of, of the negotiator here. He's actually really funny. He's basically comic relief. He's always messing up, and he's always, you know, and there's uh, some good bits between him and uh, our lead. So, like I said, this one is really entertaining. The action's good. The bad guys are memorable, and it, it's just, I don't know what the kind of tone to put this in. Maybe, like, um, not as, like, like I guess you'd put, like, a Beverly Hill cop tone, but not as, com- I guess not, you know, not Eddie Murphy style humor, because Eddie Murphy's, like, one of a kind with what he does. But it has those kind of, like, it's, like, action, and there's, like, stakes, but it's not all out a gore fest or really incredibly violent. There is moments of violence. So, you know, it definitely feels like an early 90s American action movie, more so than a late 90s, um, you know, uh, Chinese Hong Kong movie. 
but I, I still enjoyed it. Well, this is kind of how they feel as well. So I guess it's kind of weird. This is how they feel. But I, I enjoyed this one. I thought it was really good. Very entertaining. And uh, a lot of twists and turns and gags that uh, the uh, the characters are playing on each other and stuff. There's definitely a good cat and mouse element going on here. And good good side characters and everything like that. Not, you know, as uh, bullet crazy at the end as I would have liked. Now, the sequel, um, the sequel came out a few years later, and it was kind of like, to me, have you ever seen, like, a movie that really was a big hit, and then, like, years later, you want more, and then eventually it gets put out, and it's, you know, kind of like Austin Powers 2. Just for example, it's almost the same movie, the same jokes, the same gags. Sometimes they improve on stuff, sometimes they don't improve on stuff, sometimes it becomes old hat. And that's what part two came. Like, it's the same movie, it does a lot of the same things as the first film, with our same uh, protagonist and a couple of the same people coming back. Another guy coming back as a different character. And it adds like a gambling element, which I liked. And uh, uh, the the antagonist is a magician, so there's some cool uh, kind of stuff here. But there's also some weird CGI. And I don't have a problem with CGI. A lot of the good CGI you never notice. That's the best kind, right? But sometimes when it sticks out like a sore thumb here, and it does at times. But as far as the, the film as a whole is concerned, I think it's a step down from the first one. I like that they're both included. But um, the first one is kind of like just a, a kind of little gem. And the second one is just more of the same, but just not... It can't really capture the magic of the first one because, like I said, it's just the same beats, just not as profound. And the antagonist is not as interesting because he doesn't have that, you know, ailment holding him back so you don't really root for him like you did in the uh, first movie as well so you know you want the first one you want them both to kind of come together and work and, and solve this and the second one you just kind of you know you don't really have any uh you know dog in the race uh as far as the special features are concerned there's quite a bit here we have um there we go sorry about that uh yeah Brand new audio commentaries for both movies by Frank Jin of the North uh, New York Asian Film Festival. And then we both have, uh, for the first film, we also have commentaries by writers uh, Lorette Couture and Julian Carbon, moderated by Hong Kong film expert Stefan Hammond. Archival interviews with screenwriters Julian Carbone and Lorette. Uh, French is not my strong suit, guys, so I apologize. And we also have uh, the director's overview of Carbon and, uh, them again, archival featurette, archival interview with director Johnny Two, archival interview with stars Lang uh, Ching Wan, archival interview with composer Raymond Wong, and then for the second one we have a commentary as well with Frank Chen, the making of Running Out of Time 2, an archival featurette Hong Kong Stories, a 52-minute documentary from 2003 by director Yves Mauer, Johnny Got His Gun, about Hong Kong cinema mythology um, via Julian Carbon and Lorac Corso's uh, experience as screenwriters in the Hong Kong film industry, working from, for uh, Wong Kar Wai, uh, Choi Hawk, Daniel Lee, and of course, Johnny Two, which is really cool to have all them people included and stuff. I did see uh, Choi Hawk on there as well um, being interviewed. So yeah, anyways, it's a nice release if you like the movies, and it's cool to have both in the same place. One's a, a good recommend, two is a slight recommend, but the, the documentary is cool too, so check it out. Okay, so um, I was watching a lot of 1980 movies, as uh, you know I have been, and I kind of like got in this weird kind of like... Where I was like burnt out on them. So I was like, I need to switch it up. I'm going to watch something just right on that I feel like watching on my shelf. It's a little bit wacky looking. And this is from Culture Shock, which has been putting out a lot of weird movies. And this is American Scream. Now, I actually prefer the original cover art to this one. I remember seeing that. I don't know if I ever saw it in the video store. Just like see movies not released on Blu-ray that you'd want. But it's American Scream. Boy, this is a weird movie. 1988 comedy horror film. I put comedy before horror. But uh, yeah, it, <laughs> It feels very late 80s, early 90s. 
And I mean that as a compliment. I, I, I've seen a lot of movies growing up from that time, so it's got that weird zany quality of, you know, almost like an innocent per like perversity to it. If that like peeping Tom shit, like where you're like, this is never fly out, but it's still just like done like firmly with a wink, like, yeah, this is silly and fun, and it's like, yeah, but anyway, so all right, the first five minutes, ten minutes of this movie, there's already like somebody looking up somebody's panties. There's uh, you know them peeping at the neighbor who's cheating on her husband with the mailman. There's nudity there. I was just like, okay, this is even more bizarre than I thought. All the characters are acting like, like cartoons especially the father he is so goofy i know he's popped up in a couple other movies but he reminds me of like matt frayer um but he's not it's like it's funny to see that um you guys know the trash can man from the stand but it's just like so weird and the mom and they're just like these over-the-top bizarre characters that fit in that late 80s early 90s mold so they're all going on vacation they're two kids and two neighborhood kids that are friends with their kids a son and daughter and then a, a, a guy friend and a girlfriend all of them just kind of going not relationship just going to you know you know go on vacation and your kids take their friends that's just kind of common thing what happened so they end up going to like this uh, isolated little small town and there's a lot of snow and there's a lot of buck flower which i absolutely love you got to have buck flower in this kind of exploitation kind of town and they notice right away that there's no young people here and uh they start to like notice that the, the, the townsfolk are strange and mean and just like Somebody's going around killing the young people here. Now, Buck Flower is absolutely bonkers. He has this huge, elaborate backstory of nonsense. I love Buck Flower. This role fits him. <laughs> so, after a while, there you know, there's a couple kills here um, that are decent. They're not like the best kills ever, but there's a lot of nudity and sleaze. And one of the kills involves a, a child with, and a giant breast. So, yeah, that that. <laughs> fucking weird but entertaining and goofy all in the same this is something definitely right up my alley i i enjoyed it um and it has just a lot of goofy gags you know uh there is a good hallucination scene where our character starts to like imagine his dad like falling apart which i thought was really cool um this is enjoyable weird silly stuff kind of like a, i wouldn't i don't know if i'd want to call it a gem but it's going to be a gem for a lot of people and it's really cool it's out like this is a movie that like i would have on a bootleg I, this is 110% a movie I would have bought on a bootleg like 15 years ago and just never thought ever it would hit DVD or, or Blu-ray. And now a lot of those are coming out, which is just bonkers to me. Like we have so many of those old bootlegs that have just gotten actual releases and I picked them up and just can retire that bootleg, which is great. But this is definitely one of those movies that just you thought would be lost on VHS forever. And I actually would say almost every Culture Shock release feels like that. I figured almost all these movies would be lost on VHS forever. I'm glad they're not. So that's pretty cool stuff here. So yeah, check out American Scream. Did I even say the title? I feel like I did not say the title, but it's the American Scream from 1988. Boy, oh boy, here we go. So I had to pop in a vinegar syndrome. Like I said, I wanted to break up the uh, the random stuff. I had been watching all the same kind of stuff, so I wanted something a little random. So I've decided to pop in the film Mirage, 1988-89 classic by legendary Italian director Umberto Lenzi. This is Hitcher in the Dark. That's right. This one I've had uh, on DVD, and I never actually watched my DVD, so I was like, well, we got to fix that. I always loved the cover. And right when I noticed it was Film Mirage, I was like, oh, no, we're, we might be in for a really goofy time. If you guys don't know that, it was a production company of, like, Joe D'Amato, and it released a lot of goofy movies like Troll 2 and, and Crawlers and I think Deep Blood, and um, Door in the Silence, the Fulci movie. So a, a lot of mixed bag kind of films, you know, like people like uh, Claudio Fergazzo would make movies for them, and, and Umberto Lenzi, and it's just crazy that Umberto Lenzi and Fulci made a film Mirage movie. And of course, you know, I, I think even the first one, 
that Joe Diamato produced. I don't know if it falls under his label. That was, you know, uh, not maybe his first, not his first, but one of his early ones of Michele Suave's Stage Fright, which is an excellent movie. So anyways, Joe Diamato behind this company, Umberto Lenzi directing it. This is just this weird, bizarre movie. Like a lot of these ones are shot in like Florida. And like they, I feel like they're filmed in English, they're filmed in this area. But all of them have this unique, weird quality about them. And I, I would say a lot of the uh, imports, you know, Italian movies, they would always try to be American. But for some reason, this batch of movies from Italy, the late 80s, early 90s, are the ones that are like the most guilty of just coming across super awkward. Night Killer is another one. Like where they just feel like so forced uh, in, in the best kind of way. So we have here is a Tom Cruise kind of lookalike character. He's in a, a handful of films. Uh, you might recognize him. Uh, and he's basically, he's kind of like... Um, like Norman Bates style person. He has mommy issues, but he's way worse. He's has entitlement. He's from a rich family. So that kind of character, you know, the incel kind of character that, you know, so many of them are prevalent today and have always been, they just didn't have a name. Um, so what happens is he's driving this RV cross country and, uh, cross Florida. And he ends up picking up this girl and murdering her in violent fashion, taking pictures of her nude body, all this kind of weird, uh, tropes or, or stuff that serial killers or murderers would have dumps her body you know that kind of deal so so we kind of understand who he is and what he does um then he spots this girl dancing with her friends and she's like just kind of dancing not even provocatively but you know this triggers him because hey he's a weirdo and he hates women and he hates you know he, he resents a lot of you know sexual stuff because he's all fucked up he ends up kidnapping her after she gets you know in a fight with her boyfriend and he's torturing her throughout the entire mind games, all this kind of stuff. And we start to get like a glimpse into his backstory, why he's like this. And meanwhile, the boyfriend um, decides to go look for his girlfriend and starts to lead on and everything. And it ends, you know, with these three having this confrontation and all this kind of stuff. Um, it's really sleazy. Um, the lead performance by the, the Tom Cruise style guy is so bonkers and over the top and whiny. It's, it's like it, it, the kind of perfect for what he is like in that kind of type, you just want to punch him. And he's just like, that's the kind of character he is. Um, and the extras in this movie are exactly that. They're just over the top as hell. Um, like, for example, there's this wet t-shirt contest. I kid you not. There's a wet t-shirt contest in this movie. Hey, it's in Florida, right? It's got, you gotta have it. So American. Um, it felt like, you know, the R-rated version of Married with Children for a minute here. So, uh, essentially, like, they're having this wet t-shirt contest. And all the extras are just, like, doing the, yeah, like, they're doing, like, they're on Arsenio Hall or something. Like, they're like and it's just so silly. Um... And over the top, like there's a part where, let me finish the, uh, I guess the wet t-shirt contest. Like literally then like the women are pulling down the shirts to get like more votes and there's kids like five, six, seven year old kids at like this water park in the background walking. And like, you're just like, and like, even at one point the announcer's like, Hey, this, there's a family place here. And it's just like, I can't believe it. It's just like flashing like 10 year old kids. Like, and it's just not that I'm a prude. I just think it's fucking hilarious. Um, but, um, Crazy, crazy, crazy. And uh, then, like, the extras, and they're, at, like, watching it uh, drive-in. And they're just like, ha, 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 laughing at the most mundane comedy, like, broad mundane comedy. It's, it's hilarious in that aspect. And it's just not intentionally, like, goofy. It just comes across goofy which a lot of these film mirage movies do. And I, I, I enjoy that quality. Like I said, you know, um, sometimes it works and sometimes you feel bad for it, but the movie is still quality in a lot of ways. Like the cinematography is really well done. There's this nice looking picture, although, you know, the motivation of the character is a bit goofy in the scene, you know, it's very on the nose. He finds this dove. It's like this mad killer. He has sympathy for this hurt dove, but he finds this hurt dove and he's like, he takes it out and throws it like, so it can fly away. He tries to help it. And there's something stuck in its wing. And like, 
the 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 shot there is just like the beautiful setting sun it's like magic hour there's like purple it's just so good it's just like you know in some aspects the filmmaking is always quality and it's just maybe like the um the the obvious uh language barriers and stuff like that and you know differences in culture that kind of make for goofy moments and everything but i wish there was more kills um but it, it has its sleazy moments. It's not an intentional comedy and some really good cinematography all at the same time and locations. Um, it would make a, guy, a nice, uh, you know, um, double feature with Welcome to Spring Break, also directed by Umberto Lenzi and this kind of time frame <laughs> in this kind of vein as well. And I remember liking that one as John Saxton and is, is Michael Parks in that movie. Maybe some other familiar faces. Um, as far as the special features are concerned, we have an archival interview with um, Umberto Lenzi. But more importantly for me, we have a commentary track with film historians Sam Deegan and Cat Ellinger. And I love their commentary tracks because they always stick up for people like Lenzi. They mention, you know, Argento gets all the credit for the Italian directors. But he's like, oh, lots of people like Lenzi and, and Martino, they don't really get any love and and they're right they are right i mean like they mentioned that Lindsay was doing this even before you know dario was so i mean they're they show a lot of respect although i, I am a bigger dario fan than Lindsay fan it doesn't you know negate the great things that Lindsay did for the genre so anyways hitcher in the dark from vinegar syndrome it looks good it sounds good i thought the sound mix was really well done and the movie's sleazy goofy and just something that you might really enjoy i think if you like night killer you'd like hitcher in the dark Okay, now we're going to talk about the new uh, Predator film, Prey. Now, Prey is actually on Hulu, so if you want to check it out, it's directed by Dan uh, Trachtenberg. He did um, 10 Cloverfield Lane, I believe, which is a really good film if anybody hasn't seen that. So here's what it is. I love the first Predator, and I, I like the second Predator. It's been years since I sat down and really focused on it. And then, you know, after that, I really wasn't too much into the Predator films coming out later and everything like that. I'm a huge fan of the first one, so I heard some decent things about this. So I sit down and start watching it, and I notice, like, the dialogue comes across really awkward and really just... It's, it's kind of bothering me because it's in English and I'm just like, it doesn't feel right. Like a lot of period pieces when they're in the wrong language, it's always just kind of like, eh, you know, sometimes in the sixties and, be and before that you could just let it, forget it. And then somebody told me, you know, there's a Comanche dub of this and I'm like halfway through the movie. So I switched over to Comanche and it completely destroyed that problem for me. So I was like, oh wow, you know, this, this just, it, it took away one of my big negatives of the movie and, and the flow was just better that it just came across more natural. And I really like that. First and foremost, I thought this was shot really well. I thought that they picked a beautiful location, the landscapes, the cinematography, all that stuff was well designed and it looks so natural and, uh, you know, beautiful. So that really helped with the movie. And now I don't know if they did any digital touch-ups on the background or not. I'm sure they did, but I didn't notice them. So which is another, you know, hats off kind of deal to them. But while the background and the locations look so natural and so beautiful, when they add real life animals that have been done in CGI, it doesn't look that great to me. So when you have something that you've seen for real, and it's not a monster, it's something that you know looks like something, and it's it's put on the background of something so real that it just stands out. Like, none of the CGI animals looked very good. They looked all kind of poor to me. Now, none of them were so bad that it ruined the movie for me, or I was like, oh, that's horrible. And the second half of the film I like a little bit better than the first half, probably a lot better, because the first half of the movie, I enjoy the, you know, the, the uh, Native American, like, warrior, the Comanche warrior, and I dig that it's a female and everything like that, but they get to this point where they're like, you can't hunt, you can't hunt, you can't hunt, and she keeps messing up, and I'm like, I just don't want her to mess up if she's, you know, like, 
Because, like, she's, do- uh, she's doing all these, like, feats of, like, awesomeness and a- agility before she even hunts. And then, like, she'll go to hunt and she'll- she won't do anything. And the other guys just aren't doing anything agile at all. And then they start... It just didn't make much sense to me at that point. Um, like, that she's better at everything except hunting than these guys. It's like, okay, whatever. But she obviously can hunt. Um, and she obviously is going to hunt. We know what's going to happen here. Um, it-, it wasn't that... I-, I just felt like they kept hitting me over the head with everything. Probably because when they had the English language the first half, they kept double-repeating shit. You know, they'd say it in Comanche and I'd say it in English. It's like, I, what, why, didn't, why are you telling me everything? I get it. You know, the tribes, they don't, they, they're not believing because she's a woman. She can't, oh, yada, yada, yada. And she's going to have to overcome that. You only have to tell me that once, like in a movie like this. I get it. I get it. But they kind of hit you over the head with it in the first half of the movie. Small negative, nothing too big. Um, and then the animals, you know, the predator going through and fighting all the animals felt a little repetitive. Um, in that aspect, but after again the second half, when we start to get you know the action with the predator against the the tribe and her and all that stuff, much better. And then when the Frenchmen enter the equation, it gets gory, it gets wild, it gets really entertaining. So it was a really fun, uh, wild movie. Um, I like the special effects one, you know, the, the gore and stuff. I don't mind CGI mixed in practical and that kind of stuff. I was fine with it. Um, I thought that worked well. Like I said, the CG animals there's a little shoddy to me. Um, and I dug the performances when they were in Comanche so much more and everything like that. I know there's people are nitpicking certain things like, how could this girl who can't kill pre-? It's like, bro, dude, these are horror films. Like, human beings overcome crazy things all the fucking time. You know, like, how could anyone do anything in these movies? It is a story, and you're either going to have to buy that or you're just going to check out, you know? I, I feel like this movie is, is grounded in, in reality, but not so much that when something unrealistic happens that you're like, I'm done, I'm out, you know what I mean? You're not watching Heat or something. It has, like, you know, an element of fun and sci-fi and action and, and horror to it. So, I mean, not those movies can't all be serious as, serious as well, but, you know what I'm saying, it does have an element of fun. And, and it works. I liked it. It's, uh, you know pray it's on hulu check it out um i like we everybody's been saying you know we'd like to uh see more predator movies in the past and everything and i saw an article right after i watched that one i was like i want him to fight a samurai and then there's articles like he should fight a ronin or samurai i'm like yeah he should that would be cool with the armor and everything like that and predator is a cheater man like and this one i don't i i guess he's always a cheater but this one i'm just like and, like, the animals don't act, I think, how animals would act when they encounter a predator. I think they would be gone. I think they would run. I think most things would run. But at, at that point, you're just like, this predator's a jerk, man. He's just, what a jerk. But anyways, uh, good movie. Predator's unique-looking and weird-looking, too. I do prefer the original, of course. You know, less CGI on his face. Just his design is so iconic. And, you know, Kevin Peter Hall, his performance is good stuff. And, hey, here, here's a nice little thing. For everybody to be like, you know, they're ruining the original movie. So Jesse Ventura and Bill Duke, both stars of the original movie, both were like, check this movie out. It's pretty cool. It's a good movie. Check it out. And that's just, that's cool, man. And Bill Duke and Jesse Ventura can like a movie that they were a part, a sequel to a movie that they were a part of and give it a shot. You don't have to love it, but just try it in Comanche first. I would at least. Okay, guys, let's hop into those 1980 movies. They did this to you. They're trying to turn us against each other. Just look at them. What do they know about friendship, anyway? I'll get them. You watch. I'll take care of those sons of bitches. Watch it, Alan. I'm shooting. Oh, good Lord. It's... It's unbelievable. It's... It's horrible. I can't understand the reason for such cruelty. 
It must have something to do with some obscure sexual writer. With the almost profound respect these... Getting very careless. Blood in your hair. What will we do? You want to look pretty, don't you? Pretty for me. I can't believe you're not afraid. All you have to do is piss on it. Could he care blood, ain't you? God damn it, Ralph, get out of here. Go on, get. Leave people alone. Don't ever come back again. Oh, shut up, Ralph. It's got a death curse. Evil. God, my leg. God, my leg. I'm here. You're here. There's a fog bank out there. Messenger of God. Stay here. Demanding everything, including blood. John, I want this material burned. All of it. My son was a son of a bitch, and he was no good. That's it. My son is dead. I don't want to talk about him no more. Oh, Sandy. Oh, Sandy. You're gonna die. Ma'am, we didn't find any boy. You know as well as I do. Takes all kinds of critters to make farmer Vincent fritters. <laughs> I wonder who the real cannibals are. Okay, and the first one up is Dr. Heckle and Mr. Hype. That's right, starring one of my favorite uh, actors of all time, Oliver Reed. And he gets to play dual performances, of course. You know, it is a Dr. Jekyll story, so you kind of have that idea. But it's a little bit uh, different. You know, it's more of a nutty professor story, if anybody knows that, you know, which is based on Dr. Jekyll. Uh, very unattractive person. He's a podiatrist in Oliver Reed. He uh, makes a, he takes a serum that another doctor uh, has developed in his, you know, his practice, and he turns into the, you know, handsome Oliver Reed. What's really cool is, you know, when he is Dr. Heckle, he's very ugly. He's this green-faced monster on the cover, but his inner monologue is that of, you know, handsome 
sinister Oliver Reed. But then when he turns into Oliver Reed, his inner monologue is that of Dr. Heckle. So I, that was a nice little touch there. This is very goofy humor, very ridiculous humor, very dated humor. Now, there'll be other movie I talk about from 1980 that has the same type of humor, but completely falls flat on its face. Well, to me, I really, really loved watching, you know, Oliver Reed play these dual performances and just having these dumb, obvious jokes and, you know, the flat-footed private eye who legitimately has, like, flat feet and he can't be hurt he it's just so much ridiculousness uh and of course you know that take a bunch of people take this serum and they go from like heavy ladies to beautiful women and all sorts of bonkers kind of stuff here like this is a enjoyable goofy broad movie um and it has like a lot of funny stuff too like i would put it in like the caliber of silence of the hams from 94 but much better than Silence of the Hams, if anybody's seen that. It's almost, you know, it's kind of a parody of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Of course it is. But it has, you know, Oliver Reed. And he goes around and he, he starts to, like, be completely infatuated with his looks when he's uh, Mr. Hyde. And anybody that somehow insults his looks while they're on the accident or on purpose, they have to pay the price. So he starts to kill women. A couple in kind of graphic detail, it, it kind of crosses that line. Did this one end up being rated R or not? Yeah, it manages to get rated R, and I can see why. It has some, some gory bits here and there and everything like that. But uh, there are some other people in the cast uh, I should mention. Um, Dick Miller has a great cameo as a garbage man. He keeps popping up. I love Dick Miller. Very funny stuff. And, uh, ooh, ooh, who's the other guy in here? I'd make Mel Wells from Little Shop of Horrors. Mushkin. Mushkin's in this from the original 1960 Little Shop of Horrors, and so is Dick Miller. So, obviously, the fan, uh, the director or the casting director was a fan of Little Shop of Horrors, but who isn't? So, he's got two of them. There's just lots of goofy stuff going on here. And, uh, the makeup is great on Oliver Reed. Um, and just having him just be completely out of his fucking mind and just weird and weird, bizarre performance. This movie doesn't feel like 1980. It feels like 1993. It feel, looks and sounds and feels just like something that would have came out in the early 90s that Oliver Reed like was in like severed ties or something like that um I like it I know it doesn't have that many high ratings but you guys remember I'm also the guy that loves meet Wally Sparks so it is what it is right humor is very subjective and uh, I dig this Okay, the next one up is from the BBC. It's like a miniseries. I think it was in two episodes. I don't know if it counts as a movie or not. I'm counting it. And it stars David Hemmings, who I love, from Deep Red and a bunch of other stuff. And this is Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. So uh, the BBC, okay, you know, obviously a very, you know, big company, does a lot of classy stuff. And they're not no, they're not a stranger to horror films. So I, this one was about an hour and 54. And, you know, it's based off the same material as, you know, Dr. Heckle, Mr. Hyde. Very different movie, though. Uh, Robert Louis Stevens. It's a great story. If anybody's ever read, you know, the short story or novella, whatever it is, of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, I would really recommend that. So David Hemmings here is, is he's like dating this humanitarian woman. He's kind of a humanitarian in his own way, too. He's very stiff upper lip, you know, as Dr. Jekyll, you know, and he's older and he's just kind of run down to a certain extent. And he has, you know, of course, a couple other doctors who are in his practice, friends of his that he doesn't always agree with. Right. So what happens is he ends up he's developing this serum. Of course, he takes it, and he turns into Dr. Jekyll. Now, in in kind of the vein of like a, a edge of sanity with Anthony Perkins, he starts to frequent. I can't remember if this is in the book or not. I remember in the book, he uh, is more so like a smaller man, a younger, smaller, hairier, more aggressive man. And this one, of course, he becomes handsome, and he starts to frequent these prostitutes more. And it's like he has this weird, um, you know, hold on him when he's Dr. Jekyll, where he has this, you know, I would say like this, he, he wants to, um, you know, like he has this waspy 
thing where he just is held back. He's regressed and he, he doesn't want to show any, you know, any weakness in sex or attractiveness. But as he becomes Dr. Jekyll, I meant Mr. Hyde, of course, he, he kind of lets go. And it goes to a couple really dark, nasty places that I was just like, I are they doing this? They did it twice so you would make sure you, you caught it. He starts to frequent child prostitutes. And I was just like, fuck. And that's just like setting up this awful idea that, you know, he had all these horrible thoughts in his mind. But when he becomes Mr. Hyde, he embraces them and everything like that. So David Hemmings is an excellent actor. We all know that. And he gets to play dual roles. He does them both well. Um, you know, when he's Mr. Hyde, he is very, you know, charming and evil and mean and just gross. And when he's Dr. Jekyll, he seems very sad and morose and just you know, morose. And sad. I'm just saying the same things over in different words. But, you know, he's just very low energy and sad and he does a good job. Uh, I, I like how this turns out. You know, if you've ever read the story, it's just that, but just done very well, um, well acted. And I love the little opening music they have. This is quality. This is a piece of quality film here. Um, I would recommend checking it out. I'll have to pick it up if it's ever released on Blu-ray or if I can find the DVD. But BBC's... Uh, um, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde from 1980. Good stuff. Good stuff. One of the better of the movies I watched this week, to be honest. The second best. Um, probably the best, to be honest, but maybe my second favorite after Dr. Heckle, Mr. Hype. I, I also love movies that do Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde because a lot of people tell me I have mood swings. I'm almost like two different people. So, hey, I, aren't we all? Yang and yang, right? I, Dr. Henry Jekyll, MD, fellow of the Royal Society, I'm about to record for posterity and in the interests of science the day-by-day -day details of the bold experiments which I am currently undertaking. I have long been absorbed with the duality of man, the good and the evil housed in a single body, with myself as, as good an example as any. If the twin sides of my nature could be separated then the unjust could go its own way without disgracing its more upright twin. And I could be left to do the good works to which I have dedicated my life. And I believe that I am on the brink of decocting an amalgam based on opium derivatives and the alkaloid from South American mescal made soluble in ether, which when mixed in the right proportions will both prove my thesis and bring peace of mind to myself and to all mankind. Okay, the next up is from 1980. It's a TV movie, and it is Dr. Franken. And this stars Robert Vaughn, a classic actor, Battle Beyond the Stars, The Magnificent Seven, and everybody's favorite film, Chud 2, Bud the Chud. Um, so here we go. Robert Vaughn is Dr. Franken, and he's, of course, working on a... Um, uh, a Frankenstein monster in, in a modern setting and it feels kind of like The Kingdom by Lars von Trier how they have like a lot of the interactions between the doctors and they're all trying to hide stuff but 
it's very bland and very dull, um, and almost nothing really happens. If I had to compare this to another Frankenstein piece, I would compare it to Larry Pheasant's Deprave because we have a lot of the, you know be- bureaucratic stuff going on as well. But we also have like a twist here, of course, you know, because the mind of the monster is used and, and it starts to like kind of let people know that something happened to this person and, it, and it's somebody else is guilty because of it. Yada yada. You can you can see where this is going, right? Um, I don't have much to say. I know maybe this is probably one of the only reviews on YouTube about this movie. And you're like, Dave, you should probably put a little bit more effort into it. But this movie was very bland and boring for me. It wasn't an absolute, like, uh, you know, offensively bad. It was just kind of dull. And there wasn't anything for me to really connect to. Robert Vaughn's fine. The acting is fine. Um, The Frankenstein monster himself is just a guy. He's not a monster. He looks just like you or me. And he's just walking around the street in confusion. It's not a movie that really embraces the whore. It more embraces, you know, the you know the Frankenstein kind of story. But it, I don't even think it really does that any different or any better than any of the other adaptations. So you could probably skip this one, to be honest. Um, it's on YouTube if you if you're really curious about it. And I know maybe somebody has seen it and they do enjoy it. Um, so it's just not something I can get a real recommend behind. It's kind of bland. The Doctor Franken. Okay, the next one up is another style kind of Frankenstein story. See, so I did two Dr. Jekylls. I'm going to do two Frankenstein-style stories. And this is The Henderson Monster, 1980, listed as a horror film on Internet Movie Database. Let you guys know, this ain't no fucking horror movie. Um, and I'm not that. I'm not a gatekeeper, okay? I'm not the guy who's like, that's not really horror, is it? But it's just really not. It's kind of like a, a melodrama about the arguments of science versus, you know, religion in this kind of college campus area about safety and all this kind of stuff here. Um, it stars Jason Miller, who's really good in this. I think he's a really solid actor. Of course, Jason Miller is in The Exorcist and Nine Configuration and Exorcist 3 and a slew of other films as well. I like him in this. Um, so what we have here is it kind of follows the story of um, Jason Miller, who's a brilliant um, biochem... I can't remember exactly, biochemist or something like that along those lines. And what he's trying to do is try to create this certain... Um, this certain kind of deal where him and his like his uh, he has like a uh, another doctor helping him who and they're trying to figure out I can't remember exactly what they're trying to do it's definitely you know cutting genes and stuff like that and doing all sorts of weird things to help you know re- you know health issues later down the line but um, something in the very beginning they accidentally dump a culture that they shouldn't and it's it, they feel like it could possibly contaminate the environment this kind of screws with the the doctor his assistant's head and a lot of other things start to play into factor we have a new mayor who comes in and the mayor you know he's like kind of a you know comes from a working class background and he doesn't really like you know the college and the the sciences and everything like that so he it's almost like the local town the religious people are kind of like you know the villagers who want to burn down frankenstein and everything like that so we start to get into these like a lot of these philosophical questions and and what ifs and all this kind of things and there's another scientist there who is part of the atom bomb creation so he has his input and then we have our female scientist female doctor's husband who is like a writer and he is just a drunk and he's a complete asshole and he's so annoying and a lot of the moments he has interacting with his wife you want to kick him in his balls um in fact everybody in this movie kind of comes across as unlikable but they all seem fairly realistic at the same time so it's just like watching all the people's negative sides all the time and you kind of get that you have like the head of the college who's more doesn't care really about safety he wants that cash cow in this doctor and his experiments well jason miller could care less if he's gonna you know who cares if he fucks up somewhere nothing's gonna happen he's more concerned about glory and then we have the writer who is just so happy at just 
playing devil's advocate he doesn't care who he hurts we have the scientist who doesn't know what she wants and then we have uh you know i have jason miller like i said and the other scientist who seems to you know maybe possibly come from a genuine place but maybe slipping on his reality as well so you're just riddled with all these different conflicting factors and the mayor of course you know who doesn't really care he just almost has a hard-on to get rid of this scientific place um so so it's all this mixture and stuff and it's a fairly interesting movie there's a lot of arguments in here that are interesting it just doesn't really go anywhere unfortunately like you think that at the very end you know like the silthus or something's going to come out like when the movie spawn a silthus and he's like i'm not a henderson monster there's no henderson monster the henderson monster is actually jason miller the doctor because <gasps> the real monster was Dr. Frankenstein all along, not the monster. Okay, you guys get it, right? Um, But uh, there's nothing really that happens. There's a lot of arguments and hearsay, and it's a TV movie, and it's not a poorly made movie. It's interesting enough. It's just, you know, again, a little dull, a little bland, better than Dr. Franken, but hey, it is what it is. Gentlemen, I know my constituency a hell of a lot better than you do. I don't overestimate it, and I don't romanticize it. The voter in this town, hell, anywhere... En masse is just plain ignorant. They're afraid of scientists, they're afraid of PhDs, and anything they're afraid of, they're sore as hell at. They feel left out. They don't know how, but they're sure they're getting the stick. Now, I'm telling you, gentlemen, you may be scientists and historians, but now you're talking about my field, my discipline. Now, the hearings will be held, and if the mayor and the city council are convinced that there is a danger to this community, whether your experts agree or not, that ordinance will pass. I promise you only one thing, a fair hearing without prejudging. But if you fail, let me warn you, don't feel that you can uh, uh, appeal to the ordinary citizen because they're going to be right behind me with torches starting up the hill to burn the castle. Oh, yes, send my lunch bill to City Hall. Mark it personal, please. Now, Mayor. Alan, I told you this meeting wouldn't work. Now, Tom. Tedeschi, you ought to be put away. Dr. Henderson. Next up, we're going to talk about a couple of vampire movies. The first one up is the animated movie, The Tomb of Dracula. So yeah, this is a Japanese animated film. It's based on the Marvel comics, which was like, I think, a 70-issue run. I've not read the comics, so I don't know how true this is to the comic books. From my understanding, they meshed a bunch of storylines in and tried to create an hour-and-a-half movie. So this is dubbed in English. I could not find a, a subbed version. So, okay. Um, right off the bat, uh, you, you kind of learn that you know Dracula is not necessarily the antagonist but or the protagonist. He's kind of just in the middle. We have a group of vampire hunters, I think, one is Van Helsing's nephew, uh, like down the, the storyline, maybe a relation to him. We also have, you know, a distant relative of Dracula that's, that is brought in to take him out. And then someone else that, you know, lost a family member to Dracula. So all three of these vampire hunters are after Dracula. At the same time, uh, Dracula has stolen a woman from Lucifer, Satan. Satan is the main villain of the film. So essentially, you know, Satan is after Dracula. These vampire hunters are after Dracula. At one point, Dracula loses his powers and he has to, like, face off against like other vampires and survive and you know all that kind of stuff is interesting and decent um you know i think this one's a, a decent watch i enjoyed it i thought it was interesting it's the only animated movie i watched for 1980 and uh, it was one of those things like to see how like early marvel movies were adapted and see how you know actually obscure 
a Marvel property can be in, in, in um, the Tomb of Dracula. I know that the Universal Monsters kind of made their way into the Marvel Universe, like the Frankenstein Monster and stuff like that, and there was the Werewolf by Night. And uh, Blade is not in this, although he was in the comic book run, so a lot of people were upset about that. I enjoyed this to a, a certain extent. I thought Lucifer was scary and cool. Some of the dialogue is a little iffy, but the dubbing is probably not great. And, and some of the storyline is meh, meh, and like mashed together and just really fast-paced to where it's not perfect. But there are some good moments in here, especially when, you know, the ghouls pop out, like the, the old vampires and come after them and stuff like that. Um, I would recommend watching Vampire Hunter D from 1985 over Tomb of Dracula if you're looking for, like, some great animated, you know, vampire action or even the sequel, Vampire Hunter D Bloodlust, um, over tomb of dracula but this is this is cool to watch i'm glad i watched it and i'm glad that i i you know can talk about it and reference it and stuff like that because it's unique and different and uh a movie that i didn't probably know existed for until like five years ago so that's cool stuff okay the next one up is another vampire flick i try to go like the eight kind of get eight obscure kind of classic like takes on old monsters out of the way this week not that they're going to be poor but what I did realize is, you know, like with the 80s coming in, we had that like late 70s and we had that nihilism and stuff, and that real fucked up stuff. And it was carrying into the early 80s. And, you know, like we then we started just to get like the fantastical special effects and we still had the grindhouse. So we had all these mixtures of things and there really wasn't much room for, you know, classic horror. The Hammer House of Horse was the last breath of Hammer and these other kind of monsters coming in were kind of dying on the same time. So this one is Mama Dracula. Um, and I got to say, this is the worst fucking movie I think I watched for 1980. And I I know I don't want to be negative, but I'm going to talk about it. Anyways, Louise Fletcher stars in this. Excellent actress. One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. She's also in other stuff like Invaders from Mars. And she always does a great job. She's a, a tremendous actress. I mean, Nurse Ratchet is one of the greatest villains of film history. She's so good. Um, and such a perfect character type. So, um, And I don't think this movie's poor because of her. Um, she plays Elizabeth, Elizabeth Bathory, or Bathory, how some people say it, you know, the old count who used to bathe in virgin's blood. But hey, it's 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 nowadays, it's modern times, and it's hard to find virgin blood. It's even hard for her helpers, who are like these two twin brothers that are very goofy, and a lot of the movie is them just doing stupid shit that's not funny. So here's what it is. The humor is very broad all over the place, and like I said, I like goofy, silly humor. I loved Dr. Heckle, Mr. Hype. I've seen that movie a couple times now, but I like Meet Wally's Bar. I like stupid shit. I like the Three Stooges, okay? I like all this stuff. None of the humor lands for me. It's not funny. The movie's very hard to hear. It's very inept. Characters just wander in the scenes, and you're like, who's this? What are they talking about? A lot of people have thick accents. It's, I believe it's a Belgium-directed film. And, you know, our Belgiums aren't funny, I don't think. I, I, people are like, you haven't seen this obscure 1974 Belgium? You'll have so many belly... I don't know. I'm sorry. I, I can't think of any time where I thought French or Belgian films were that funny. Good. Lots of great ones, right? Like John Roland, the French, and, and, you know, stuff like that. But it's just like... Are they really known for their humor? Well, if, if, if their humor is anything like Mama Dracula, no. Fuck no. It's just not funny. None of the jokes land. There is some nudity. Like, they do have a couple minutes of nudity and stuff like that. Um, I just couldn't never get intrigued. I dare anyone to give this movie 100% of your undivided attention. I dare you. I don't think it's possible. It's not possible for me. I had a hard time getting through this. Um, you know, there's a Mill Creek version of this. It looks like shit. It looks like a, a downgraded VHS thrown on a disc and digitized with eight other movies on a, uh, a single disc or something like that. I'm sure that's what it is. But this movie is, is brutal to get through. The jokes don't land. Um, the best parts really are the opening with the painting and the narration. You're like, oh, this could be interesting. And then it just 
dives in. There's a doctor who's trying to develop, you know, a blood serum for her, and he's just has like moments of being goofy and silly too. Aren't very funny. He's not very. He don't know no much charisma from anybody except, you know, of course, Louise Fletcher. But again, like I, this is the worst movie in 1980. I, I would put it over. What was it? Monstroid is is better than this. Much better than this. Yeah, this has got to be the worst one in 1980. Okay, next up is one of two of the Mummy movies I'm going to talk about. And the first one is, of course, The Awakening. Um, who directed this one? Mike Newell. You know, that name's familiar. I'm curious what he did besides this. Anyways, the star is Charlton Heston. Everybody loves Charlton Heston. Uh, yeah, this this would make a good kind of like double feature with Saturn 3. Because you get to see Kirk Douglas like midlife crisis. And you get to see Charlton Heston midlife crisis here. So this is based off, what is it? The Seven Jewels uh, so, uh, story by Bram Stoker. Which also the uh, Blood from the Mummy's Tomb from Hammer Films was based off the same short. And these share a lot of similarities. So... Charlton Heston is an archaeologist, and he's obsessed with, you know, uh, getting to this tomb and whatnot. And his wife is currently pregnant when he gets there, and he's so obsessed with it. They open it up. There's a, there's a strange curse. And, like, a lot of things just, like, lead him. Obviously, there's a, a, a supernatural element that's going to lead him every time somebody tries to shut this project down or anytime somebody tries to get away from what they're doing. They die a horrible death, a la Final Destination style, you know. And there's a lot of movies that kind of did that before Final Destination, like The Omen had those deaths, or Soul Survivor had those deaths, or this one had those deaths, or any Mummy's Curse movie had that kind of like random act of God death, where you're like, well, I fell down the flight of stairs and something hit me. You know, Final Destination did it a different way, incorporated some really awesome things, but you know. The Mummy's Curse and stuff like that, a lot of people died in mysterious circumstances and whatnot in kind of random fashion, and The Awakening has that. In particular, one death involving some glass was actually well done and, and pretty decent. In fact, this movie's pretty solid. Um, it's not horrible. It's just a little slow, a little dull. Charlton Heston is good in it. I enjoy him in it. I, I like watching him with that fake beard and the ridiculousness, you know. He, and it's it's good. It's the better of the two Mummy movies um, that I'm going to cover this week for sure. Uh, and it's about as good as you know a 1980 slow-paced Mummy movie can be. Uh, how I compare it to Blood on Mummy's Tomb, um, I like this one better. I know a lot of people probably prefer Blood on Mummy's Tomb, the Hammer movie. It's probably quality-wise better. It has Aubrey Morris and other people in it too. But I always felt like that movie never was really completed properly. Um, I can't remember who did that one. Was it Mike Michael uh, Carreras or something? And I think something happened with that movie. The director died halfway through, and it shows. Um, this one, you know, like I said, it's kind of dull, but it's nice to see the same story told in a different way. Um, but it's very similar, too. It's not even told that different. I think it's very similar. But, you know, uh, of course, the daughter starts to be taken over, you know, reincarnation, of course, from this ancient uh, entity. At the very end, there's like a reveal that Charlotte Heston is like, what? I didn't know. It's like, how could you not know that was happening? Like, are you blinded by this or something? I don't, he's supposed to be blind about the whole thing. It just doesn't necessarily work in that aspect. But as a whole, I think the movie's decent, you know, uh, three out of five or something along those lines. I would maybe watch it again if it popped up on TV. I can't see myself being like, we got to watch The Awakening every Friday night. Um, but it's okay. It's not horrible. And I'm glad I watched it. You got to watch at least one mummy movie from 1980. I believe there's another one too, like the trip or the whip of the mummies or something. If I, if I have time or if, you know, I think it might be a sequel, so I might avoid it. I'm not sure. And the last 1980 movie is The Curse of King Tut's Tomb. Now, I believe the same story is told in 2006. And, um, you know, this King Tutamamen or whatever. Uh, so the big actor in this one is Raymond Burr. And he's like an Egyptian guy in it. 
not very convincing. He's wearing this big purple robe and he wants the contents, of course, of the tomb. So this one is more like a, it feels like a docudrama, but it does have the horror aspects. Of course, it has the curse and a lot of the same similarities happen here. You know, uh, uh, Harry Andrews is in here, right? And he's in, um, geez, isn't he in Vault of Horror? He's in one of the old Hammer, he's in one of the Hammockus movies, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, oh boy, I can't, no, He's in Theater of Blood, I believe. I believe he's one of the, uh, uh, the uh, of course, the critics. Um, so, so anyways, essentially, it, it's kind of the story of them going in here. There's a curse, um, and people start to die from the curse of King Tut's tomb. And Raymond Burr wants the contents. There's a lot of, you know, bureaucracy going behind the scenes. Don't have much to say about this one. Um I was definitely bored during this one. This is probably my second, my least, second least favorite movie. It just didn't have much to do in it. And like I said, it's very hard to make a good mummy movie. And it really is. And, you know, Paul's Nashie's Mummy's Revenge is, is top tier mummy movie for me. Like, and I don't want to be rude. The original, obviously, and some of those ones are, are you know, classics. But as far as mummies are concerned, it's just not very easy to make a great mummy movie and this proves it this year for sure um uh, did 1970 have a mummy movie as well i think it did and before anybody's like well you got to watch the devil's story if you want to watch i've seen the devil's story okay i stand by my statement there's not a great mummy movie there's great mummy moments i mean there is some great mummy movies all right all right but it's hard to make a great mummy movie and uh, i'm not really talking much about curse of king tut's tomb because i don't have much to say about it Especially after I kind of like just said everything that happens in this happens in the awakening, except the awakening is the better version with different, you know, more interesting kind of style and story. But this is, you know, you know, King Tut's tomb it was, you know, so it's, 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 it has some real history to it at the same time, which is kind of interesting. So, but I don't have much to say. You can run it on Amazon Prime. So that's about it. Hey guys, we're here for You Ain't Seen. This is my pick for you. And we were going to do Night Riders. We're going to do that next week, most likely. But uh, just because this one got a general release and it was one that I've been talking about having you watch forever, I was like, well, now is the time to do it. So I pushed ahead and we did Massacre at Central High. It's released by Synapse Films. It's a classic movie. It was uh, released on VHS and then never released again until this Blu-ray. Maybe some overseas kind of releases that were shoddy and stuff. But it was really nice to finally have this in a wide available Blu-ray. So we had to check it out. I've not seen it since... um, VHS days. I had a VHS or an import or something like that. And I was interested in having you watch it because I feel like it's a, a big precursor to Heathers. And I think it, it definitely the writer or director of Heathers definitely saw Massacre at Central High. More so the writer because right. it's in the writing, I would say. So essentially the story of Massacre at Central High is a new student comes to this uh, high school. And uh, I don't remember the actor who plays David's name. But his friend Andrew Stevens, son of Stella Stevens and star of stuff like Ten to Midnight and Day of the Animals, uh, tries to bring him in his new kind of group of friends. There's three of them along with Andrew Stevens. There's four that are horrible bullies. They pick on all these, uh, you know, nerds or outcasts, poor people. Just they're they're real pieces of shit. Like the worst kind of high school bullies you could think of. Some of the nerds include Robert Carradine and some other familiar faces. So David doesn't really like this. So he fights kind of back with them and starts a lot of waves until they basically attack him. And this sets David off into a rage of revenge. Um, yeah, and mayhem. Right. Uh, it, the movie's about, you know, politics and human nature, and it's a lot darker and deeper than a lot of people would see, I think, on surface value. Right, and it does have, like, um, like, like where, where it ends, what, like, 
with with the eradication of the the three bullies. Um, we're gonna spoil this. Yeah, so we're gonna spoil it. Yeah. Massacre at Central High. Check it out. We like it quite a bit. I do at least. So we'll give you that at this point. I think you know. Let's yeah. Just, before we get into like the things, let's just general thoughts about it. Oh, general thoughts. Um, let's see. General thoughts. It's pretty good. It's definitely. Um, I, I could see the, the, the reason why somebody would think that it inspired Heathers, because there's a lot that's in common with it. I think Heathers is totally a bit... Com- more comedic. Yeah, it's a, this I'd say comedic. Funny. This, 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 this is not have the comedy elements. Um, Maybe some unintentional, just because... Unintentional. The, but I, I didn't find it unintentionally funny. I know some people might. Right. So. Um, a, a lot of nudity in this one, surprisingly. Yeah. A lot um, more nudity. It's definitely a product of its time. Right. And, and I love the fact that it's 76, the same year as Carrie. So two right. high school horrors, kind of back-to-back, kind of, you know, those are kind of big deals then. And I know Carrie inspired a lot. Right. Um, man, I don't know. Because as, as much as I think that this inspired Heathers, I also feel like Heathers... Well, it probably doesn't have as much to say that this movie doesn't already say. I think that Heather's style-wise is a bit... I think it exceeds it. See, like you're getting... uh, See, when we started getting that, it was spoilers. But generally, on the surface value, I think it's a very interesting, good movie. Mm -hmm. Um, The kills are fun, and they're crazy and unique. And when people start dying, you don't exactly expect people to die the way they do, as fast as they do. And then it kind of goes to a next level of of what's happening. And it's like you think, oh, is this movie almost over? And then you're like, no, there's like 30 minutes left. And it's about to get real fucking crazy and, and explore these dark sides of human nature. And it's perfect that it takes place in high school now because like people like in this day and age you know because it really does kind of fit that mold Mm -hmm. so i guess we'll spoil a little bit yeah so so basically um let me me say this one thing before i slip now heathers kind of took that like how no one really cares if people die and like kind of made fun of that that twisted that kind of nature Mm -hmm. well this one kind of just suggests that there's a power vacuum in human nature and somebody's got to be shit on all the time and it's just horrible human nature and well, yeah, so, 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 but Heathers does have the power vacuum at play. It though. does, it does at the very end, too, yeah. At the very end, you know, with, with like the what whole, I'm going to take her scrunchie, you know, and, you know, I, I, I'm the new sheriff in town. Um, which is what this one is, is that, you, you know, once he kills the three bullies, for like a couple of days, like the students are all like, oh, we get to be ourselves, and then like they start like collapsing because there's, there's like no system system and people there's no power fill structure in those, those roles yeah and so all the geeky kids that you came to like learn throughout the movie and like for the and most like part. and then now you're realizing oh now they want to be like the person in charge and you start to realize there's not much difference between humans right in general and it's it's a it's a real dark thought to have right uh because after that david who seems to be an outcast you know what i mean mm-hmm. like if it was old man version of this they definitely would have cast charles bronson oh yeah for, for yeah. sure like but and he has kind of that charles bronson mentality in a weird way he's also like the punisher because like the punisher punishes bad people but then like if somebody comes in that was initially on the side and they do awful things the punisher will kill you too he doesn't right. really have uh a, a, a loyalty he no. has only loyalty to what he thinks is right and right. if you break that, it doesn't matter who you are. And this is weird. It's almost just like he was disgusted with the, 
he if they would have stood up for themselves and killed them and then been pieces of shit i don't think he would have done anything but the fact that he stood up for them and took control and then they sneak in and try to right it's just like they absolutely were just everybody in the movie's awful the guy who kills all everybody is the most likable mm-hmm. yeah yeah and and so it's so yeah so so he has the idea well like well if you're all gonna be pieces of shit i'm just gonna blow up the whole school which isn't too dissimilar from jd but yeah. JD just wants to blow up the school for, because he just wants to blow up the school. Um, uh, there's a difference in, in mentality. Some yeah. of the characters are really fun. Like I liked Rodney with the car, the poor mm-hmm. kid who gets the nice car, and he's that was that's a great touch. And the the first kind of initial when the nerds start getting killed because you don't really expect this. The one we have the hearing aid, but the next one, um, the big guy, the fat kid, mm-hmm. who basically he's not even that fat. Like he's average right. weight in today's world, but in 1976, like that's the fact. They, we heard the story. He had to gain a bunch of weight for the movie, right. like 20 pounds <laughs> a week. So he's like shoving everyone <coughs> with his weight. And what happens to him is you don't see that coming. Like the locker and boom just a sudden explosion a lot of explosions and kind of a lot of action for this kind of cheap oh movie yeah like, like again a lot of sex and nudity too a lot of sex and nudity explosions um you know car i think like four cars explode in this um it you know it's it's good i i do like this story with like david and um the girl and the boyfriend yeah like, you know, the love triangle. There's definitely a love triangle there. And, right. and Andrew Stevens, I guess, probably is the most likable because he has the, at least, uh, he's torn and stuff. And he has the idea that he tries to stop it. But he's also not the most likable either because he kind of initiated, caused this, a lot of this. Oh, yeah. Instead absolutely. of just leaving his bully friends and hanging out with David and saying, listen, don't fuck with him. I'm out of here. Mm-hmm. But he wanted to keep his place. Right. Uh most of the acting, I think, is solid. Occasionally, one of the actors will come across really corny. And it was just in that one scene where somebody was in the car, and they're like, oh, no, or something like that. And I was like, that was really a weird line read or something. So some of the dialogue is a little on the rough side. Um, and I think, like, as a result, it, it causes, like, lines to be delivered in, like, a very unnatural, almost after-school special kind of yeah. way. And, and that music, the song, yeah, the, right. the theme song doesn't help that. But I've I grown to like that. Mm-hmm. Um, this director wasn't American, which is even crazier because although the dialogue might suggest that, how it's delivered and stuff, it does have like an inherently American kind of mentality when it comes to the killings, I would say, and just the violence in schools. But I guess that's just, just predicting ahead of time, right? Right. I mean, you know, anything like pre-Columbine, it's, you know, any violence in school, like, I, I don't know if that's, like, like the main... I mean, we've had, like, violence we've in schools, had, and we've, yeah, we've had, had shootings before yes. that, mass shootings and stuff. You know, there was just guys walking down the street shooting people. It's right. happened before, Charles Whitman. You know, it's not, but... It's not like it's never It, it wasn't there. typically in the school as much. I, I just, just, I don't think that it was in, like, the public consciousness until, I think, Columbine and then everything thereafter. Um... Because you do look at stuff like, you know, like this, Heather's, um, to an extent, Carrie, but Carrie's a bit on the supernatural side. Well, class Tragedy Girls, too, is another one that involves murder in high school. And mm-hmm. Class 84 is another one. Those are right. all, you know what? Those are all great movies. Oh, they're all great. Yeah. And, and there's something about high school horror that I just think is You can either do fun. it really well or really bad. Like, right. you never know what you're going to get. Like, so, I mean, even Scream is more of a high school-oriented horror. And usually yeah. slashers, they are, they, they feel like they should be, they're usually a little older in high school. They don't take place all in high school, although right. there's a lot that do. There's a lot that do. You get, like, the faculty and... No, it's not a slasher, though. It's I'm talking about slasher, the 80s slashers. Oh, had, the 80s had their slasher. share, but I feel like more, more so they were older. But I, I think it's important that, like, 
when I say like a high school horror, like high school has to be like a main function in the movie. It has to the be faculty the is theme high school horror for sure. of of the uh, of the movie, like yeah. something like Scream. Like they're not looking at like the yeah, high school. Yeah, yeah, yes, you're right, you're right, you're right. Um, but something like this or Heather's, um, to an extent, 1984. Um, it's like teacher, teach the, the teacher. Yeah, um, you, you know, it's like, it's like we high haven't covered that on here. I can't believe that's one of my favorite movies. I haven't covered it on here. Really at all? Uh, I well, might both of us have seen it. So yeah, so well, it's just the one thing. And I, I've covered Class of 1999 on here, which is also one I love, mm-hmm. and even its sequel, Class of 1999 Part Two: The Substitute. Is Class of 1999 not the um, sequel to Class of 1984? Yeah, for some reason, there's three of these movies, that's and so the, weird. and the third one is just like a cheapy. It's not horrible. It's just a cheapy action movie. Well, what's the one with uh, John Lovitz? Oh, High School High. High School High. No. Yeah, high school high. 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 That's nothing to do with the horror movies. It's John Lovitz in high school and Michelle Walter. Is it Louise Fletcher as the principal? She is. I just talked about Louise Fletcher and Mama Dracula, which is a dog shit movie, but not because of Louise Fletcher. Um, So, anyways, as far as the special features are concerned, we have this like featurette making of has interviews with a bunch of the people, including Mm -hmm. uh, Andrew Stevens. Um, There's 13 principal actors in the film. So it's a big cast. Mm-hmm. They got six of them, I think, or seven of them to talk. The Which three, is pretty good. The three main bullies aren't there. Rainbow Smith is dead. She died. Um, and I don't think any of the females are there. So that uh, three major females and the three butts, six. And they got the other seven mm-hmm. um, for sure. So they got Robert Carradine's on there, Andrew Stevens, the guy who played David. So And, and they, they, they have nothing but nice things to say about the director, really. And, and it was just kind of a lower-budget affair, but they think they did a good job. And I think they did, too. I think they made a really cool movie. And if we did, they already did 76 on uh, 22 shots, so I wouldn't get to make a top 10. Be very hard-pressed not to have this on my list. I think this would be on my list of top 10 from 76. I don't know any other movies that came out Carrie. of 76. Carrie. Carrie. The Carrie. Tenet. Ten- eh, do I like this better than The Tenet? Yes. Yeah, yes, so I do I. I. I mean, I know people like that. <coughs> it's not in your this your book. It's in your book, but it's not in my book, so I'm going to read it on Terror on Tape, James O'Neill. Okay. A Massacre at Central High, three out of five, three out of four stars. Pretty good. Uh, Mari, the new kid at inner city hellhole Central High, is brutalized and crippled by a ruling gang he later seeks a gruesome vengeance upon. The surprisingly potent mix of Death Wish and To Serve With Love has horror and slasher overtones boasted by a clever plot, uh, plotting and a great exploitation cast of older high school seniors since Blackboard Jungle. Uh, yeah, so I am going to give this eight and a half out of ten quite a fan did i see blackboard jungle is that the one with james dean uh maybe it is i think it is i, I think, think james I dean it. only did what three or four movies before he died yeah. rebel without a cause east of eden and is the blackboard jungle the i other? think I, Black, Black so I, I don't know but what do you um, give this this is um this is a four out of five it's a good rating it's a good yeah i mean it's it's a good fun movie i do like heather's a bit more um, um heather's is is your style you've it seen it first style. it has more money it has the bigger actors it has the more professional it's just mm-hmm. it's also more of a comedy it's more of a comedy i think it has a better not not a better well yeah a better script honestly i think that i would say this uh you know the the polished dialogue and stuff is just better it's more quotable fuck me gentle with a chainsaw well like, and like the the thing about heather's and its dialogue is that like the when the the writer made like the the phrases that the Heather that's are we spoken got... in Heather's with teen slang, it's like it's stuff that he made up. Like he didn't try to co- he didn't try to make like what teens were saying at the time because he wanted like a timeless piece of work. It's similar to kind of like how uh, Clockwork Orange is like oh, linguistically. Yeah. Um, 
but then like like those phrases i think from heather's van like you know permeate into popular culture and you know like kids phrases change all the time i'm at that point now where i don't understand what kids are talking when they're talking to me so with heather's he uh, had um what was the line fuck me gentle with a chainsaw they were supposed to say something else and they were like no we hate that line you're not giving that line and they said fine they get a fuck me gentle with a chainsaw and then like after they're like that was worse wasn't it they're like yeah yeah it yeah, <laughs> was probably much worse than the line we initially had that's on you though well you know when uh, she says like do you have a brain tumor for breakfast and then like uh the heather that said that eventually dies from a brain tumor in like the early 2000s stop it swear okay. to god <laughs> so what are we watching next week um i guess we should watch night riders then because we yeah. did a bait and switch well i mean both those movies are both movies we wanted to watch for the show and it's not like you're getting like red to kill which you were in love with it's like your favorite movie now. right absolutely you know you see he picks a movie and then he changed the movie and then so i had to pick his pick from last week so well, you I wanted to watch pick. that you didn't lose a pick. I lost a pick. Uh, do you want to do two picks in a row after this, Night Riders? You know, I, I think I will. Fine, then we'll do Night Riders yeah. next week, and then you get two picks. Yeah, and you're gonna you're gonna be sorry for them because you know I'm still not gonna think of a movie to watch. No, you're gonna like. Time what is it? Then I'll be like, contraband. <laughs> like what? Okay, we're done. All right, we're done. Let's get into these questions, comments, concerns, all that good stuff. Right when I signed into this tablet. Okay, Gorky M. Glad you did a review of A Chinese Ghost Story. I love that film as well as the second one. You also might want to check out another classic film called The Bride with White Hair. Absolutely batshit crazy, starring Bridget Lin and Leslie Chang, who was the main actor in A Chinese Ghost Story. Sadly, he killed himself when he jumped to his death from a hotel balcony. He was a huge matinee idol over in Hong Kong, but he was secretly gay and couldn't deal with it. Um, I have that. Uh, the Eureka Blu-ray. I'll have to check it out. There was a sequel, too, if I'm not mistaken. Um... Uh, Bride is also directed by Ronnie Yu, of course, um, who did Bride of Chucky and um, Freddy vs. Jason. Um, check it out if you haven't already. I would like to see you and Jeremy discuss Contraband, another early faulty classic. I look forward to your segments every week. Keep up the good work, by the way. Uh, are you familiar with the Spanish horror film called The Corruption of Chris Miller, one of the best Spanish horror films ever made? Yes, I actually covered that if you search my old reviews from The Vinegar Syndrome. Mike Obey, keep up the great content, Dave. You're my go-to channel for Weird and the Wild and the Obscure. Keep it cult, buddy. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Can't believe I just did that. Zach Nolan, I think a conversation with you and the dude from Serial at Midnight would be very interesting and helpful to your channel. What would your top ten films with carnival settings be? That's I basically ask what top ten or what short video segments you would want to be. I love that one because I love carnivals. And somebody says, Ilk Vomit says, if Dave don't have Ghoulies 2 as his number one, I would be shocked. It's going to be on the list. Nick Mula, good to see your spirit is restored, sir. YouTube would be poor without a weekly dose of Mr. Parka. As for the short TikTok segments, perhaps the five best Lovecraft adjacent films as a decent direct adaptations of Lovecraft are sparse, not to mention the whole cancel Lovecraft because woke PC bullshit or lists of your acting performances that you deem good. I don't know if anybody actually ever tried to cancel Lovecraft. I mean, come on. We, we all know. I mean, he's not obviously not a good guy, but made some great stories and he was like a hundred years old. He'd be like, what? 150 now or 200 years old. Who cares? Um, I, I never really heard anyone say anything about Lovecraft cancellation, to be honest. I feel like maybe I'm just not there seeing it, but how would you react if they tried to cancel the zombie genre? I mean, in what context? Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, I, I don't know if they try to cancel the zombie genre. I just don't understand why. Like, it's a it's a hypothetical question that has no real merit or reason. So I would really have to hear the reasoning behind their argument before I could even comment on it. Is there a film you got tired of waiting for, even if you're really excited about it once about a time? I think House of a Thousand Corpses originally, I was very hyped to see that. And then after a while, 
and you know sometimes when you're waiting for a movie that you've been in you're like oh i can't wait to see this how, how it turned out then after like years you're just like eh, i don't even remember that movie you know you lost you lost that feeling would you cast a friend or a loved one in your movie knowing some would give you grief think john borman casting his kids i here's what it is if i ever get to that level where i get to direct movies for a living i don't really give a flying fuck what anyone thinks I barely care what people think of my movie now, to be honest. I know that's weird to say, but it's just kind of the truth. Um, I, I do, I try to make the best, and I understand it has flaws and it can be bad. But here's the thing: same time, now if I was doing it over, like, like you could have had, you know, you know, what is it? You could have had Daniel Day Lewis in your movie, but you put like your brother who never acted a day in his life. You know, you should take ridicule for that. Yeah, of course. But I mean, you work with who you like. You work with who you know you can work well with. You know, sometimes you to have those people there is more important than what some asshole thinks online. Especially if you're Rob Zombie. Who gives a fuck? I mean, Rob Zombie don't give a fuck what you think. But it's still funny hearing everybody complain about him all the time. Until uh, next week, never give up, never back down. Ken Coakley. I'm a huge fan of the film The Wildlife. I didn't get to see it theatrically, but rented it at my favorite video store in 84 85. Unlike the more famous teen, uh, teen comedies, this one had more identifiable characters. In those days, I was a metalhead and didn't find any until The Wildlife, then later River's Edge. People of the 80s say Judd Nelson. Um, and Breakfast Club was a metalhead. No, he wasn't. No metalhead would wear a headbang to Neha. Uh, Neha. Uh, I'm not sure what that is. Neha, <laughs> LOL. Yeah, I mean, uh, I don't. John Nelson and the Breakfast Club ain't my guy. I, I wasn't a metalhead, but my, I had friends that were metalheads. I mean, like if if you were to tell me, ask me one of my favorite, it wouldn't be John Nelson and Breakfast Club. I'll tell you that. Chris Penn's other buddy was played by a Angel Salazar from Scarface. Oh yeah, shit. And Mania, he's the guy who dies at the very end when he tries to get in the door, isn't he? And Mania Cop Two. Uh, Hart uh, Bachner as the jerk cop, Dean Devlin, the producer of Independence Day, played the liquor store clerk, Lee Ving from Clue and Get Crazy, as well as Punk Legend, played the cable guy. The incidental music was done by Eddie Van Halen. Another movie that I liked but was in your update section is The Force of One. Line you, I prefer Chuck Norris's early film. Like you, I prefer Chuck Norris's early films. I saw this at my childhood theater, the Paramount Theater in Newton Corner, R.I.P. Bill Superfoot Wallace played the bad guy. He was a, a better martial artist than actor. Yeah. Ken Coakley continues, I'm going to be all over the place a little bit when you read the best true crime films. I thought, how did I miss that? Uh, including Dog Day Afternoon. There's a good documentary about the real Sonny W who played Al Pacino, who Al Pacino played in the film. Sonny W said that he and his accomplices were at the movies to kill time before robbing the bank. Ironically, they saw The Godfather. I'm also sorry I missed Helter Skelter in Cold Blood, The Town That Dreaded Sundown, as well as Deranged. Genre favorite Robert Blossom was incredible in that. Christopher Walken auditioned for the part, which... Uh, is odd because he was too young for the role. Helter Skelter is something I revisit from time to time. David Glemon from The Thing was in the film as a detective. I, I, uh, what was it? I love Deranged. Robert Blossom, Robert's Blossom is great in that. He's also got some of the best lines in Christine and, uh, Quick and the Dead. Get away from me, you vultures. So, new, now, for top 10 list, I would recommend, uh, top 10 Italian horror films, horror films in general, films of all time. Okay, there we go. D. Gulag, context does matter, and I'm really hard to offend too. Great episode. Travis Linscombe, hey Dave, I'm glad you uh, that everyone reached out to you to give the channel some love and that you're feeling better. Thank you. I don't know if you saw mine. I commented on Patreon about it. I'm starting to feel like I'm running out of time too, and we aren't even that old. I wonder if it gets easier when you're in your 40s or 50s, or I'll always feel like my time is dwindling. I never used to feel that way until the past few years. Yeah, I, I know how you feel. For the question of the week, top 10 Italian knockoffs would be great. But more a broad uh, one on slashers and zombies would be, e especially since you're a zombie guy. 
no worries this is a lot to keep up with because i told my i don't i i didn't know if he wanted me to read the patreon comment you can read mine on the show but maybe it'd be easier if it just commented on youtube jordan bennett found footage uh, on the computer there's been a couple of those lately chet turner how about horror trilogies made of short films is there an example that you think is outstanding i mean there's two that come to mind um uh, family portraits and morris county those are the kind of the big ones that are three separate directed by the same person um frank bangs a top 10 horror movies that have stolen their premises from other movies that'd be cool or premise or premise i was say premise. jeff keith uh obscure titles or sov Lacey Lou, Killer Kids, Jonathan Wilhelm, all top 10 list. Uh, favorite horror movie composers, favorite Western movie composers, favorite character actors, favorite Jeffrey Combs performance, favorite ragtag groups and movies, Wild Bunch, or The Losers Club from It. Great, great one. Favorite film standard on vehicles, Christine. Favorite killer animal movies, favorite SOV movies, most wanted movies not on disc that you you want you would bought, want brought to disc. I definitely would. Do, I was planning on doing that one. Favorite death scenes in movies here. Fight scenes from movies. Favorite movie tropes. Least favorite movie tropes. Favorite femme fatales. Favorite giallo. Favorite Italian ripoffs. Favorite Bruno Mattei films. And then Robert Mazzola. Horror films that never let up. Suspense the whole time like The Shining. Josh Hayes. The life and works of Jose Larraz. Touching on all the good gothic horror out there and how it's created. That would be very interesting. Sounds like a job for Cat Ellinger. <laughs> uh, Jason Lindbergh, the works of John Roland. He's a big favorite, I think, is very left out of the, without mentioning the greatest horror directors. The atmosphere and cinematography in most of his films is spectacular. Jay Wall, movies shot in strange conditions or settings. Very cool. So this week, since I covered an American Scream, I want to know, what is your favorite OCN sub-label, your Vinegar Syndrome partner label? What's your favorite one? Is it, you know, Agfa, you know, Culture Shock, um, Saturn's Core? Which one's your favorite OCN uh, sub-label for Vinegar Syndrome? Um, let's hop into this update. Okay, we have a quick update here. Uh, we have I'm Dangerous tonight. Yeah, this <laughs> is crazy, man. This has uh, Lee Ermey, um, D. Wallace, Anthony Perkins in it. And it's about a killer dress, and it's directed by Toby Hooper. And it came out in 1990. Now, I had heard about this movie just in passing, and I never saw it. And right when it had a Blu-ray release, I was like, dude... I have to see this movie. It's crazy. This is what was the uh, one that came out a while ago by Peter Strickland that was about the killer dress. So I, I doubt there's an inspiration for Mom Dangerous tonight. But yeah, I mean, hell, it's a Toby Hooper movie that I've never seen with Lee Army, Anthony Perkins, and Dee Wallace. I mean, gotta check it out. And it's Kino. Next up is the classic Mario Bava film, Planet of the Vampires. It's got a new, uh, what is it, a 2K or 4K scan? Brand new 2K master on this bad boy. It's a crazy movie, way ahead of its time. It also has, uh, you know, just I, I feel like old, you know, probably the same special features or not. But I had to upgrade for the price. It was not bad. And it's a classic, you know, inspired alien, other things like that. Cool film, colorful, Mario Bava, legend. Um, then we have the Satan Bug, which I got at a good price for Kino. You know the the movies that are kind of going out of you know a print, so it's like like five dollars. John Sturgis, great director, of course. You know he did stuff like um, The Great Escape and I believe Magnificent Seven, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, this one has a pretty good cast in it as well. A lot of older guys. You know I'm not super familiar with them, but this one sounded like it was something I would enjoy. The Satan Bug. Diamonds for Breakfast, another one that's going on a, a Prince. I got this probably because Rita Tushingham is just such a, 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 a strange actress to me. She looks so unique, and I've seen a couple performances she's done that I thought were really great. Um, so, yeah, this one looks interesting as well. Um, not too familiar with this one. Um, I, I basically picked it up because Rita was in it, and I liked her previous work that I had seen. 
And then last is Cop Out with uh, James Mason uh, and uh, Chaplin, uh, Jardine Chaplin and Bobby Darin. I've never seen this. I I don't know this movie very much. You know, I am familiar with James Mason as an actor, and I've seen Chaplin pop up in a couple other things. But it's, again, more of a blind spot for the price. I I picked it up, and it just I didn't want it to go out of print without getting it. I thought it looked interesting enough. So, yeah, anyways, uh, back to the video, guys. All right, guys, thank you very much for watching, and as always, have a good one. Mm.